Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Coming up in this episode... Now nobody's saying that Chatsworth Estate is the Garden of Eden, but it's been a good home source to me, Frank Gallagher, and me kids, who I'm proud of, because every single one of them reminds me a little of me. They can all think for themselves, which they've me to thank for. Paul Abbott, creator of Shameless, State of Play and No Offence, talks about how his career went from one to the other and while he's still betting on traditional broadcasters despite the rise of streaming. And Stacey Rookeyser, showrunner of Lifetime's Unreal, talks to C21 editorial director Ed Waller about the changing role of women in Hollywood. That's all coming up in a moment, but first a rundown of some of the news from C21 Media this week. Warner Brothers chairman and CEO Kevin Sujahara was forced to leave the company weeks after being promoted in the wake of AT&T's takeover of parent Time Warner. Revelations suggesting the exec used his influence to help actress Charlotte Kirk land roles while the pair were in a sexual relationship meant his position at the new Warner Media became untenable. Boss John Stankey was forced to appoint an interim team to handle Sujahara's responsibilities. Warner Brothers television chief content officer Peter Roth, Warner Brothers entertainment Chief Financial Officer Kim Williams and Warner Brothers Pictures Chairman Toby Emmerich take over while the search for a permanent replacement gets underway. Disney closed its $71 billion acquisition of 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets, marking an extraordinary and historic moment for the media giant, in the words of Chief Executive Bob Iger. The deal hands Disney Fox's film production business, 20th Century Fox Television, FX Networks, National Geographic Partners, majority control of Hulu and Endemol Shine Group. Meanwhile, the newly formed Fox company, comprising the broadcast network news and sports operations not wrapped into the Disney deal, began trading as a standalone entity under boss Lachlan Murdoch. As many as 4,000 jobs are now expected to be on the line as Disney embarks upon the process of merging its new assets with its own. Spanish broadcast and production powerhouse Media Pro said it would spend 200 million euros to bolster its studio operations. The Barcelona-based company already makes 5,000 hours of programming annually, but said it was now growing into an active protagonist on the international stage, driving productions designed for the global market. Following the success of Bandersnatch, Netflix's first interactive episode of hit satire Black Mirror, the US streamer commissioned two more interactive shows. The first an adventure series from Propagate Content, fronted by survival expert Bear Grylls, and the second a kids series called Battle Kitty. Netflix boss Reed Hastings said the company would not be a partner to Apple for the launch of its own upcoming streaming service, while a report from Ampere Analysis suggested the present market leader has tipped the balance in terms of its content offering, featuring for the first time a greater proportion of original shows than third-party acquisitions. Finally, the finalists were announced for the 2019 International Format Awards produced by C21, Frapper, EMC and MIP Formats. More than 270 formats were entered this year, with 57 making the shortlist. The winners will be announced at a gala dinner at Club C21 in Cannes on Saturday, April the 6th. Visit our website for all the details, where you'll find more on all these stories and many, many more. Coming up in a moment, Paul Abbott, creator of series including Shameless, State of Play and No Offence. 
But first, if you listened to last week's episode, you'll have heard C21 editorial director Ed Waller talking to KDC Media Fund managing partner Danny Pellid. Ed was at Keshet Media Group's NTV conference in Jerusalem, where he also caught up with Stacey Ruckheiser, currently showrunner on Lifetime Drama Unreal and with previous credits including One Tree Hill and Without a Trace. He started off by asking her about the present environment for showrunners. It's a very exciting time to be a showrunner and a content creator because there are so many more outlets for content and the kinds of shows that we've always wanted to do, serialized shows, shows that do not have linear timelines, shows that have female protagonists, and in particular complicated, deeply flawed female protagonists that were not always at the top of everyone's list of what they wanted to do. There's a real demand for those now. I'm interested in the um, the, the, the different characters that we can now see on screen. Yeah. Uh, is that largely down to the arrival of uh, the on-demand platforms, or is it a, a cable thing? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I have not worked in broadcast network television in a long time. Um, and I think also because even when I would be pitching them, they weren't that interested in those kinds of characters. So um, so I think it is in the cable and the streaming space especially. But I do think today everyone is looking for that more. It's, it's an exciting time. I mean, I agree with you that the diversity of characters is what's really interesting and important and for me in particular that's female characters and not the girlfriend and not the token cop and um, not the wife um, while the male character gets to have agency and all the interesting things to do and the flaws Um, and I think that it's an interesting time to be a woman in Hollywood right now there's a lot of conversations about that and I think that um, going beyond the conversations about creating safe workspaces, which is certainly important, but to me is just a baseline of what we should be talking about. It goes even further to um, encouraging and promoting female voices as creators and showrunners, because what you get when you have a female creator or a showrunner is someone for whom these stories are immensely personal. And so they are willing to go to bat for these stories and really go to the mat for these stories and fight for these characters who feel real and personal to us and that's how you're going to get diversity. Which are the platforms on the networks that are really sort of uh, championing uh, female showrunners? I mean, I, I, I think you see it almost everywhere now. You know, I since Unreal finished, I'm, I'm writing a pilot now for Netflix, I'm writing another one for Showtime. Um, there was never even a question at, at either of those places. Certainly, I came up at Lifetime, which um, is now not really doing much in the scripted television space, um, they're, but they're doing a lot of great movies. But they have uh, always been hugely supportive of female writers and directors, frankly. Um, they have a program called Broad Focus, which was um, very much about that. Um, but sometimes there's been, frankly, a bit of a ghetto, <laughs> female ghetto. Um, and I think that um, that's just really changing. And there's a huge awareness of that now. So even, look, there's there's a lot of talk in Hollywood now about unconscious bias, that we hire people who are like us without even thinking about it. And I guess that means for me, I would hire a lot of women <laughs> and probably white women. That's, that's another issue that's coming up a lot. But it was mostly men who were in power, white men who were in power. And before they knew it, they'd hired a bunch of white men to create and run their shows and I don't think it was malicious in any way I think it was unconscious but now 
people are becoming conscious of these things. What, what were the shows or the characters that uh, have uh, really moved the needle in your experience? <laughs> well, I'd like to think that the show that, that I worked on and then ended up as the showrunner for the last two seasons, Unreal, made a big difference. I mean, people, when, when that show, when we were writing the first season, I never thought that we were doing something revolutionary. I thought these are two female protagonists and they're complicated and deeply flawed, but they just felt real to me. They felt like women that I knew and that I recognized. And then there was such critical acclaim for the show that it made me realize it's not normal on television. It might be normal in my life, but we hadn't seen a lot of that on television. And people were saying, oh, it's like the female Breaking Bad. And, um, and I think that I think that that's true, and I'm really proud to have sort of been part of that um, groundswell, I'll put it that way. And now, you know, there are there are so many, um, but uh, but hopefully, you know, we were a part of that. With the linear networks, the broadcast channels in the states still kind of wedded to this sort of. Uh, old forms of TV, you know, the procedural and the, the forms that, you know, you, people like yourselves have been moving away from and, yeah. and platforms like the cable initially and now the ESPODs are moving away from. Do you, do you think that's hindering the linear broadcast channel's chances of survival in this new era? Well, that's what Cindy Holland said the other day here at the conference is that she's worried for them that they're going to have to, I mean, she's not literally worried for them, but she said that they would have to evolve or really, you know, not grow as platforms, I mean, look, they still get a very broad audience. Their numbers, their viewership numbers are, I mean, Netflix doesn't say what their numbers are, but the broadcast network numbers are still incredibly impressive. And there's something exciting about being able to reach that broad of an audience. Um, so I don't think that that will go away. Um, but the idea of this sort of personalized TV on demand for that you as a viewer can choose what you want to see and that the outlet, the broadcast outlet or streamer will pick something because it will fit this niche. It doesn't have to fit, you know, six million people or whatever it is. Um, it's exciting as a storyteller to get to have that opportunity. The, um, the landscape now that you're working in is, is so much more international. We've been hearing yeah. all about co-productions and new forms of finance that you don't have to get it all from Hollywood, you could go to Europe yeah. So how's that changing your sort of aspirations or ambitions, the way you, where you yeah. work? Well, it, it's, it's exciting. There is actually one project that's based on a book that does not, I don't want to say too much about it, but it, it, it um, takes place in, in the Middle East. And that is not something even five years ago that I thought I could ever pitch and sell. And now I think, well, okay, I think there might be a home for it. Um, you know, it's the one thing that I think is still a little bit tricky is that you do want your U.S. broadcaster or streamer, whoever it is, your outlet, to really be invested in the show. And so far, it seems that the shows that they that have you know international financing or that they're only co-productions or whatever, they're not as invested in. I mean, I think that when when you have 500 shows or Ari said it was a thousand shows, however many shows are on the air you really need a lot of promotion to cut through um, so people know about your show and can find it. And that is what's really important to me when I look at who I want to go do a show for is will they support the show? Will they promote the show? Will they let people know about it? I mean, now Netflix is saying, like, we don't have to do billboards. We just send it to their list on their computer, you know. 
Which is great too, but I think that one of the things I always loved growing up about television is that it was a communal experience, that we would all watch it and we would all talk about it. And maybe those groups are going to be smaller subgroups that are talking about shows, but you still you still want someone who's really going to support your show and, and make it known. You've alluded to a number of projects. Can you tell us any further details about I'm any I'm not of supposed to talk about either one of them. Probably even saying that I'm doing a project for Netflix is more than, yeah. than what they would like. So I'm not supposed to talk about it, those. But I can say more generally that, um, you know, what was really wonderful about Unreal was getting, as I said, to write these complicated, deeply flawed female protagonists and also to get to write about something. We were writing about not only reality television and pulling back the curtain on reality television, but also writing about women in Hollywood and feminism in general, sexual assault, mental health. And I can't ever go back from that. So I only ever want to write now these complicated, deeply flawed female protagonists and to write about something thematic that's important to me and, and incredibly personal to me. So that does seem to be the common theme in everything that I'm developing. Just lastly, um, Israeli drama is in high demand. There's been yeah. lots of crossover with yeah. Israel and the US. What's your take on A, why Israeli Israel drama writers and producers have got this sort of secret sauce if you like. <laughs> and what potential do you see working with them? Yeah, no, I was um, so impressed. They had a panel here with the Israeli showrunners, creators, and one for one, every clip was either hysterical or incredibly emotional and dramatic. I think their content is such a high level. I have no idea why. It's in the secret sauce of the Holy Land, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But... Um, but there, you know, and, and Keshet in particular is a company that brings a lot of formats and that some of which I've seen are really interesting um, to do. Um, and I just hope there will be even more crossover. A lot of people are talking about Fauda and how incredible it is. But that's something that is, I think, very specific to the place that it's um, from. Although, of course, cut to someone has a great idea for how to adapt that in the U.S. But I think what's exciting is that we can see Fauda. We can watch it on Netflix. We don't have to remake it and, and, and turn it into something else. Um, we can see the original, and that's exciting, too. I mean, I'm sure the Israelis want to sell their format, but um, I think both are good. What's the best part, though, aside from the business side of it, is to go all over the world and have people have seen your work and to understand that the human experience really is global and universal and that you know, women in Israel are telling me that they love Unreal and that they um, see themselves in it. And that's really exciting is that we can just have more of a global conversation and, and common experience. Stacey Ruckheiser talking to C21's Ed Waller. Now, Paul Abbott is one of the UK's most celebrated scribes. Having cut his teeth on series including Coronation Street and Cracker, he went on to create hit Channel 4 comedy drama Shameless, which ran to 11 seasons, while its US remake is still going strong after 10 years. He went on to develop more highly successful series, including State of Play and No Offence, and I sat down with him to learn more about his career, approach to writing, and how he sees the present state of play for the TV industry. When Shameless uh, hit UK screens, I was convinced we'd get seven episodes and be taken off air. I couldn't believe I'd been allowed to get away with murder. And I was, I was in uh, Los Angeles when George Faber phoned me up with all the previews, and I just couldn't believe that they got what it was. I couldn't believe, I didn't expect anybody to uh, embrace it like that. And it just hit the ground running. We had to live up to it. It's very high expectations of comedy and drama 
for the audience. But it's one of the best experiences of my life because I just remember because it had a, it's got a huge personal history uh, built in there. But it wasn't I wasn't rendering my personal history. I was trying to render that history for an audience. It's much harder to write personal material and. In dealing with the personal material, you're remembering that you've got to be the writer for the audience as well. It just makes you twice the writer to, uh, basically, I, I kind of multiplied my writing skills while I was ripping myself apart. And uh, because I got paid well for it, it seemed a fair deal. Something like State of Play was, it's, it's, a, it's a, a more intellectual process in the way you're, uh, you're organising your story, where Shameless had so much personal rumble behind it. Um, State of Play was a more clinical piece of uh, approach. Well, somebody at Channel 4 referred to me as miserablest <laughs> because I, I did clocking off, I did you know, thrillers for ITV that were you know, very serious and he referred to me as miserablest. And so when Shameless came out, someone called me the laureate of white sliced bread. And then I picked up, I decided to write something really posh. It was as simple as that. I was being marked down on the blue collar drama. So, you know, laureate of white sliced bread just offended me. And, a state of play came out of it as a tantrum, really. But I, I loved writing State of Play. It was so completely outside of anything I'd done before. And um, wrestling with State of Play and Shameless in the, in the, in the same... It wasn't a calendar year, it was a year. Uh, it was one of the best writing experiences of my life. With a series like No Offence, I love watching cop dramas and I just can't bear how po-faced and up their own arse they can be. And I was desperate to kind of launch a, a version of comedy appealing to a crime-addicted audience who would, you give them a procedural uh, story that they would, the kind of thing they'd tune in for normally. And then on top of that, finding a layer of comedy that would just uh, splinter all of that. We used to residentially accommodate the writers and, and we'd all stick together for a whole week, talk it to death. Uh, normally you have story conferences, they'd be in a hotel, you, you get maximum kind of eight, eight hours out of it. So we used to make writers um, stay in the same house and kind of grow to loathe one another before they went off to their lovely garrets to write their stuff. Where I pick my head up normally it's to watch Netflix. I love the fact we're spoilt for choice. I've never known a time so good as um, you know when you've got three series lining up to watch at home. I mean, you'd be searching for the best part of two years to find something worth watching, you know, 10 years back, 20 years back. But now it's, you know, we're spoiled for choice. We can't terrestrially match their budgets, but I think, you know, British terrestrial channels, I think we're proving ourselves really inventive at getting around this problem. Look at all the stuff like Killing Eve, they're, they're brand new things. I know that was commissioned by BBC America and brought back in as an acquisition, but uh, amazing uh, kind of standard of imagination. And it, it really didn't cost that much to make. Paul Abbott in conversation with C21 TV. That's just a small extract from the video interview you can watch in full on our site now, where you'll find plenty more. That's all we have time for in this week's episode. Remember, in the meantime, to stay up to date with all the latest industry developments, follow C21 online, on Twitter and on mobile. Thanks for listening.